0: Lev Grossman is the book critic for Time magazine. He's the author of the novels Warp and Codex. His newest novel is The Magicians. Thank you for joining me, Lev. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, there's maybe some dispute about the authorship of The Magicians. (laughs) It looks like it's maybe the sixth book in a famous uh, fantasy series.
1: Well, uh, one of the conceits, I guess, of The Magicians is that uh, there's there's, there's sort of a a book within a book kind of – uh, set up where the, the hero of, of the magicians, whose name is Quentin is an obsessive fan of a series of novels called Fillory and further by a man named Christopher Plover who doesn't actually exist because I made him up. But, uh, I sort of plotted out the whole, um, sort of arc, plot arc of this series of novels, which doesn't exist. Uh, but if they did, they would have been written in the England in the 1930s. Um, So yes, uh, I'm very proud of Christopher Plover. Um, I've gotten a few emails from people who
0: think that he is real. But I'm telling you, he's not. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm glad. I think C.S. Lewis might be a little bit disturbed. (laughs) Might have gone after him. He might have gone after C.S. Lewis, huh?
1: Yeah. Well, he was a little before Lewis because he wrote Mm -hmm. in the 30s. But uh, I have a feeling that um, they would have a thing or two to say to each other. And that's
0: absolutely true. Now. this is a novel that's a fantasy novel about reading. And one of the things you say early on is that reading fantasy is about reading itself. And I think that's a really great observation. Well, I, I remember very much,
1: you know, the, the primal scene for me it was was the, the scene in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Lucy passes through the wardrobe um, and, and gets her first look at, at, at Narnia. And obviously, you know that scene has been gone over, and there's lots of Freudian interpretations. For me, it was all about it was all about reading to me. It was about that moment where you're sitting in in, in your room and you open a book, and suddenly you're not in your room anymore. You're you're somewhere you're somewhere else. Uh, and then, of course, you know you have to go back when the when the book is done. You're stuck back in your own life, and everything is as it as as it was. Um, and so there's a real magic about books but also kind of a sadness because they are just books in the end.
0: Well in the best books for example Narnia and and I would suggest yours also can become almost like memories false memories like uh, the famous Philip K. Dick story we can remember it for you wholesale. I think Mm. that that also speaks to that kind of reading as being in itself a kind of alternate reality.
1: Well that's very true And, and, and you're Representing a subtler idea than I than I was I was putting out there, of course. When you are done with the book, uh, yeah, it gets woven into your sort of mental DNA uh, in some way, and and, and it, it does something real does happen when
0: you read. It changes who you are and uh, and and how you see the world. Well, one of the things that I have to mention is that you talk about uh, these books, um, the characters when the characters discover these. Uh, um, the, the Fillory books they discover them in the 1970's editions and you describe well. these 1970's editions perfectly with as being kind of like yellow submarine and this really reminds me because the 70's was when uh, fantasy really genre really took off in paperback and I can still absolutely remember the thrill of seeing, I was the Bantam adult fantasy series. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you saw picked those up too. I
1: wonder what edition it was I had. It's very funny, isn't it, when you look at the history of fantasy. Uh, Tolkien and Lewis, I think, really sort of bubbled under for a long time, at mm-hmm. least in the States. And then they were embraced by the 60s counterculture and, and became, you know, this massive phenomenon. And certainly when I grew up, my I, the editions of, of the Narnia books that I had had these kind of groovy, swirly covers on them, which I <laughs> saved and I still love, and those are really as, as sort of lame and dated as they seem now. They're really they, they they're still how I picture those books.
0: Now, uh, this book uh, has a has an interesting um, uh, aspect of the fantastic. One of the things you do very well is you make the familiar seem unfamiliar, and you make the unfamiliar seem familiar. Could you talk about that process as a fantasy writer yourself?
1: There's a sort of specific way that I that I wanted to to think about writing magic and it's something that you know I, I it comes from reading a book called called Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell by Susanna Clarke and I, there was something that she did in those books that was just amazing uh which is that she wrote about magic happening uh in this just astounding way that she just using normal language not you know using the ordinary language of of sort of fantastical and magic and and amazing things happening she used ordinary nouns and verbs she writes in this very sort of straight ahead way about just totally fantastical and not straight ahead things and I think that was the sort of school that I was trying to follow writing about magic just trying to imagine what it would be like if magic was, was part of your everyday life and trying to make it seem you know, really real, and strip away the kind of cliché language that we're used to hearing
0: about it. Well, I- your novel—just to let's give people an idea, a sense of what how the novel at least begins and what, yeah. what's going on with it. <clears throat> we have uh, a character named Quentin who gets a very special invitation to uh, a school. Uh, describe that to us and, and give us a sense of how at least we get into the book.
1: Well, we be- it begins in Brooklyn which is uh, where I live, and uh, and you're introduced to Quentin, who is a very bright 17-year-old high school senior, and uh, he's sort of, he's kind of melancholy by nature. He's very sort of bummed out about his life and sort of a bit depressed, and he hangs out with his friends, but he feels very disconnected because he always sort of imagines that he belongs somewhere else in, in some other more fantastical, heroic life. and. What happens is that uh, he gets, in, in, uh, in, in a kind of strange way, he has a very odd experience of sort of a, a, a brush with death and he meets this very sexy paramedic and uh, she passes off a kind of invitation to him uh, which causes him to, to, um, to, to, to sort of make his way to, um, to a school for magic, uh, a college for magic called Brakebills, which is in upstate New York. And uh, he's initiate his his education in, in, in magic, uh, really begins there.
0: Now I have to ask, did you take piano lessons as a kid?
1: Piano lessons? No, uh, I took. I was. Uh, <laughs> I had a very intensive education in music, but it wasn't the piano. It was the cello. I spent 15 years as a serious student of the cello.
0: Now, the reason I ask this is, of course, because there's a very famous series of lessons for piano called the Hannon lessons. Mm-hmm. And you have, I think, the magical equivalent of the Hannon, Hannon lessons, which is you call the Popper lessons. Tell us a little bit about this kind of very mundane uh, magical education. I really like this, uh, this idea.
1: Well, you know, I'm a big, big fan of Harry Potter, uh, and I often wonder about about Harry. Just, I want to know a little bit more of the specifics about how magic works. What are they actually doing with those wands, you know, when they're swishing and flicking? So when I created the magic system for the magicians, it's, uh, it, it involves, among other things, a very rigorous series of gestures, a physically demanding series of gestures with the hands. And you have to, be, uh, you, you have to go through a lot of painful sort of discipline to, to master these, these, these movements that you have to do. And they do a series of, of exercises. And they're spelled out in these books called the Popper books, which I have been getting email from professional cellists because they know that when you study the cello seriously, you are put through a murderous series of etudes that are called the Pauper etudes and uh that's where that particular name comes from and that name is just burned into my nightmares because <laughs> it can, was so painful
0: i can imagine so now now when you're creating uh this idea of magic um one there's a certain kind of literary technique and i don't think it's it's been adequately described though you do it very well i'm going to call it hand waving <laughs> <laughs> there's this kind of uh uh, a kind of a notional gesture where you give use a great allegory for a couple sentences to say it's kind of like this, and I think one of the way one of the places that it really stands out is when there's a transformation scene. Uh, when uh, uh, the humans transform into animals at one point in the narrative. Mm-hmm. And you have this great explanation for it. Could you talk about using this uh, literary technique that I call hand-waving to make the fantastic seem like real? Well,
1: it, again, it, it comes back to C.S. Lewis. And uh, when you re- reread the beginning of, of The line the Witch, in the Wardrobe, it is astounding. And one of the things that's amazing is you have this scene where Lucy, the littlest of the Pevensey children, opens up a wardrobe and she walks through it and she hops inside and there's the smell of mothballs and there's all these furry coats hanging inside and she's sort of just pushing past the coats. Soon they don't feel like coats, they feel like prickly fir trees and uh, she starts to realize there's snow underfoot. Nowhere, at no point is, is Lewis cueing you that something magical is happening. Uh, it's just a series of physical sensations. Uh, which he just describes, not and not saying, you know, Lucy felt, you know, felt felt tingly, and she realized something wonderful was happening. There's none of that. It all happens through the flesh, through the physical, and uh, is, there's a bit uh, there's a bit where they transform into into geese. I guess I can give that away. And uh, it's, it's just an absolutely sort of nauseating, grotesque experience. Their flesh becomes malleable and flows into a new shape. Uh, and I wanted, again, to strip away this aura of sort of sentimental wonderment and think about really what it would be like to have these, you know, these uh, to go through these magic experiences. And I think it would be quite
0: unsettling. Uh, you have a, a, a wonderful cast of characters in this novel. They're, they're really memorable. Could you talk about uh, one of the and one of the things you say, I love this because this novel has so such a great feel of where it exists at once, as you explain, in the physical realm, but it also has a simultaneous uh, existence, a, a mirror existence, in the literary realm, mm-hmm. where you can experience it as a work of you know they're going through they're transforming into geese you experience that but also you experience it as a literary work and and to see some of the literary techniques kind of uh platonically glowing off to the side (laughs) or something and uh you at one point you say you know you talk about how there are life and literary roles and that sometimes you know in life you're just stuck with the sidekick role yeah it,
1: it, it it's true uh, I mean one of the it, it one of the things that was just so important to me about this book is that, that that Quentin the hero he you know he's he's a reader and he's able to make observations about life and and literature and how they relate to one another this is a key thing for me by the way and it's I'm gonna I'm going to indulge a pet peeve of mine uh, again about Harry Potter, who I love, but he's not a reader at all. And I find that shocking. When he goes to Hogwarts, it's as if he's never read a fantasy novel in his life. I mean, if you imagine growing up in a, in a, in a if you had to grow up in, in your abusive step family under the, on, in the closet under the stairs, I mean, I would have done nothing but read, but read Narnia novels. And, you know, Piers Anthony and Anne McCaffrey and and Fritz Lieber and T. H. White. And I would just be dreaming of you know these fantasies of, of power and escape. And then, you know, he gets to Hogwarts and he's like, Gosh, I can't believe this is happening. How odd. Um, whereas, you know, Quentin, he is a fantasy fan, and I think which I think is sort of a little more a more realistic way to imagine the story. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. he gets to, um, to to Break Bills and Everywhere After, he's always comparing what's happening to him, to the fantasy novels that he's read, and sometimes it's similar uh, and sometimes reality is, is quite different from, from what he'd read about in a book
0: uh, And he, you even uh, managed to uh, mention uh, Harry Potter a couple times, you allude to it, and, and I'm curious if you I, there are, the Harry Potter people are notably litigious <laughs> did, you, did you have to uh, have any considerations about that?
1: Well this is the kind of thing that I think the English would refer to as, as cheeky I was trying to be cheeky but not cross any lines but and actually again there's a serious point here I wanted this book to take place in our world mm-hmm. the real world the world that we inhabit and I didn't I wanted to put back in all the stuff that YA fantasy authors generally airbrush out and one of the things that you have to put in if things are happening in our world then Harry Potter's a part of our world. And I just think if kids were actually going to a school for magic, they would talk about Harry Potter. They would say, oh man, you know, there's Harry Potter. They'd make jokes about it. You know, this is like Harry Potter. This is totally the opposite of Harry Potter. I don't indulge in too much of this kind of metafictional play or whatever because it would get old and really fast and arguably I could get you know, sued, and nobody wants that. But I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, we knew that they were in our world and had and read Harry Potter. I was more worried about the C.S. Lewis people, frankly. But uh, again, uh, no word from them, and, and no news is good news. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, one of the things when you're writing a fantasy, there are a couple of different kinds of fantasy out there. There's what's called second world fantasy, which I, a good example is Lord of the Rings. It it's a completely encapsulated world that's pretty much separate from ours they call it Middle Earth so you might presume that it's Earth at some point in time Mm -hmm. but you have no clue when and it's really not necessarily connected and then there's I guess what I would call what your novel is which is like secret world fantasy where there's an entire world of the fantastic that's beyond the ken of normal people
1: yeah it's one of my favorite things to read about it's one of my favorite genres is, is, is this story about you know you're in the real world uh, and you suspect there's got to be something else out there and then you learn that there is. It's uh, you know there's a and it's in and this is sort of the tradition of of Narnia you know above all but also of Oz of the Phantom Toll Booth uh, and of course Harry Potter as well. There's a secret world behind the world and you get led into it. Um, because you're special. Uh, There's something so fundamentally just desirable about that fantasy. I love it, and I was really obsessed with it when I was a kid, and I guess I'm finally sort of scratching that itch.
0: Well, one of the things I think that's interesting that you point out is that once you believe, say, in the centaur or something, then you all of a sudden don't know what else is out there. And I think that's an interesting... uh, 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 you know, illusion. Yeah, well, I,
1: I, you know, I wanted to, I, I, I really, I wanted to, to sort of push that and, 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 and really kind of air it out. Uh, so, you know, once the, um, you know, once the, uh, uh, once, you, once you start to realize, once we, Quentin, the hero, gets tipped off that magic is real, and he's sort of the newbie. Everybody sort of knows more about the magic world than he does. Uh, and it's something, he's gotten to like his fourth year at Brake Bills and somebody says, makes some offhanded remark about dragons. And suddenly Quentin turns around. What do you mean dragons? And everybody's like, Oh yeah, dragons are real. What you didn't know, dra- Sorry, you didn't know dragons were real. And suddenly they don't. Nobody's bothered to tell him this because it's all so obvious to them. Uh, and you know, the, he, Quentin keeps sort of pushing through that wall and, 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 and discovering sort of new things that, uh, that that are out there that everybody knows about, but but him.
0: And another observation you make, I think, and this is also very interesting, is that the magic realm excludes the realistic realm. When Once you're in one, you're in that one forever because there's always magic. You can't get away from it.
1: Yes, although I, I, I want to stress that one of the, I guess, projects you could say of the magicians is to experiment with the idea of kind of trying to drag the magical world into the real world and make it behave like a, like a real world. Uh, if you look at... Um, if you look at Narnia, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, it's an amazing escape. But it's not very consistent. And it's not very, it doesn't really obey physical laws very well. My favorite example of this is Mrs. Beaver. Uh, you know, they're in this sort of feudal medieval world, you know, with fawns and people living in, in caves and trees and things like that. And they go to Mrs. Beaver's house. Mrs. Beaver's got a sewing machine. How does she get a sewing machine? You know, you'd need like... You know, a thousand years more of technology than they have to get to get a to get a sewing machine together. So I kind of try to drag that, you know, drag uh, you know a magical world into the real world and make it act like a real world. Make it act according to to to, to laws and, and rules because you know if it really existed, it would have to. And I wanted a a, a book about a, a magic world that 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 seemed real in that way. Uh,
0: this, yeah, this is I think something that 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 I noticed too. That there's in a sense, almost an element of, uh, I guess, what I call science fiction in this because you are so consistent within this. And, and this gets back to that idea of hand-waving mm-hmm. where, where you give us a few little hand-waves that uh, there's a multiverse kind of thing happening, and I don't want to say too much more about it, but yeah. it, it's, uh, y- you allude enough to stuff that we understand from our scientific understanding of the universe to make the magic itself seem more real. You
1: have hit on something very key about about science fiction, which I also love uh, uh, as much as I love fantasy, really. And uh, there's an author named Larry Niven who's one of my absolute favorites, and he wrote Ringworld. It's probably the best known of his books. But he wrote a series of of stories set in a fantastical world as well. But he did it with a science fiction uh, outlook, and Niven has a physics background, and it's very sort of hardcore about math. And he wanted to work out a magical world where, where, again, like you say, things would act in a certain way. You know, they would have social consequences. Well, if you're if you're changing the size of something, where does the extra mass go? Where does the energy come from? And he really worked it out. It's a stunning series of stories uh, set in what, what people call the Warlock world, and uh, I love it. I'm a huge. It was a huge, massive influence on me. And you know, when I wanted to build build my magic world, I took a I took a science fictional approach to building a fantasy world.
0: Well, one of the things uh, <clears throat> I love is that uh, is this uh, idea of it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> Could you explain that anecdote, which I really, this is a great one. Oh, it's
1: a classic, isn't it? And, <laughs> and uh, I attribute it to Bert- Bertrand Russell, which mm-hmm. is who I've heard it, the English philosopher, who, which is the person to whom I've heard it attributed it the most. But he apparently gave a lecture about the structure of, of the universe, as Bertrand Russell liked to talk about, things like that. And uh, afterwards, a woman came up to him and said, well, you know, you're very clever, very clever young man, but uh, you've got it quite wrong because everybody knows that that the world rests on the back of a giant turtle. And Russell, who was never slow on the draw, said, well, uh, I, I like what you're saying with this, but if the world is sitting on the back of a turtle, what's the turtle standing on? And this woman, who obviously was Russell's equal um, in uh, in matters of debate, said, "Oh, again, very clever, very clever, but I have to tell you, it's turtles all the way down."
0: Now, as, <laughs> as as Niven used math to to back up his fantasy world, I think what you use, and I think this is very interesting, makes this novel in uh, really literary ways. You use language as your kind of. Uh, science fiction um, way to justify all this. Could you talk about the importance of, of language in your system of magic?
1: Yeah, well, well, um, you know, it's funny when you make a magic system, like I've, I've been talking about how I wanted, wanted my fantasy to be sort of rule-based and to behave and to sort of uh, for the equations to balance. But of course, if you do that too much, well, Magic starts to get as mundane as the rest of the world, and where's the fun in that so I, get, I, I made it you know ultimately sort of semi orderly and the analogy that I use in the book is 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 um, it's like a language you know when you learn a language as I tried and failed to learn. Russian and several other languages, you get what you get is the grammar. You get the rules by the, that it that it that it behaves by and you think, okay, good, well I've got it. You know, when you got a direct object, it's in the accusative case and it's got this kind of ending. All right, that's sorted, what's next? And then it's like, Oh but, but, but wait, wait, uh, that's actually just the first conjugation, there's eight others, and by the way, each of them has 98,000 exceptions. So you've got this sort of wonderful living organism of the language, and you're trying to uh, impose rules on it and explain why it acts the way it does, but it never quite sits still for you. You know, there's always the exception, and uh, I think magic is much the same way. You, you learn it, you have to, but you have to memorize the exceptions, and there's always the exceptions to the exceptions, um, and it will never quite sit still um, and behave.
0: And you have a wonderful scene where your characters essentially have to go through <clears throat> the traditional kind of isolation therapy to to learn the exceptions to the exceptions, and there's almost a I think a, a a Zen approach to to this, and I think this is this is something that crops up a lot in fantasy and in science fiction is the importance of this kind of Zen approach. Did did you like? A, have you spent any time studying Buddhism, or, or was this just a kind of cribbed from, from the, the general atmosphere around fantasy itself?
1: Well, my mother's a Buddhist, although she sort of—that came, that, that came uh, later in her life after I, I'd grown up, after I, she'd used up Anglicanism and Catholicism. Um, I think that—where uh, uh, did it come from? I don't know. It just seemed as if I tried to imagine the state of mind that you would have to get into to, uh, to, to learn magic. And it seemed as though if you had really big emotions and and, and, and big and sort of huge desires kicking around, uh, that that would be quite dangerous if you were trying to wield magical forces, as it turns out in The Magicians uh, to be a very dangerous thing. Uh, and it demands a calm, a calm sort of icy state of mind, which not everybody can
0: attain Um, And speaking of dangers, you have a a wonderful scene of uh, Lovecraftian menace in here partway through. And and this is a a great literary technique of fantasy that's not often talked about. And I'd like you to to talk about how you use it, where we see just part of the monster. And and even that part might not even look particularly menacing. But tell us about this this technique.
1: Well, you know, I... I this, there's a whole sort of body of theory about the sublime that the romantics came up with, and um, uh, I'm not going to be able to, to to regurgitate it right now, but you know that sense when you're seeing a little part of something uh, and you have this and and, and, and and but you realize that it's just a little part, and you you sort of are left to imagine this unimaginably vast and imposing object or entity you know that you, you can't quite, you can't perceive all of. Um, it's like when then, you know, in Star Wars where you'll see a little bit of a ship, you know, and then the camera will pull back and you realize you're looking, you know, at this massive sort of crazy installation, a huge star destroyer with all these little bits sticking off of it. Um, and, and I, I borrow that for, for, um, for that effect, I think for, for an encounter that Quentin and, and his friends have with, um, a very dangerous, very dangerous, dangerous magical beast who, uh, you know, appears in the guise of, uh, a middle-aged gentleman in a gray suit, um, but you are conscious that um, you're seeing only the the tini- tiniest part of him, and 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 sort of being exposed to the, only the tiniest part of his power. That was the first image that that arrived at the book um, when I when I wrote the first scene of it. It was a scene with this with the beast in it.
0: Now this book is of course set at a, a boarding school, and, and you capture that kind of boarding school atmosphere well did you attend a boarding school i didn't uh, and i must i must
1: stress that it takes place at a college and not mm-hmm. a not a boarding school right. yes yes um, i i want to you know just make that distinction because mm-hmm. i i wanted to write about kids who were a bit older than, mm-hmm. than 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 high school and i wanted them to to deal with stuff that some some grown up stuff that we have to deal with like you know drinking and sex i'm sure that happens in boarding school too but i never went to boarding school mm-hmm. um, and i didn't want to try to go out on a limb there um so it's a you know it's set in an american college mm-hmm. and the kinds of things that happen in american colleges happen at this school for magic I, I always felt hogwarts was a little bit sanitized of course it has to be for it's a it's for a younger audience but you know if you had a real hogwarts you know there would be all kinds of drinking and buggery
0: and you know god knows what else uh, drinking it plays a an important part in this novel your your characters uh tend towards uh, being alcoholics. And, and this is uh, is a hazard of, of college right now. Could you talk about uh, the incipient alcoholism that your characters <laughs> indulge in? I had a couple bloggers call me on
1: this, on the um, on how much drinking there is. And, and I, at the time, I guess when I was writing, I thought, oh, that's just like, that's just, that's, you know, that's a normal amount of drinking, right? That's healthy. I can <laughs> stop anytime <laughs> I want to. <laughs> um, there is a lot of it. And I, what, what it comes out of is this school that they go to there are twenty kids in it per class, mm-hmm. and these are the twenty brightest, most intense, most ambitious high school seniors in the country, and the selection process is quite rigorous and I think if you crammed kids like that, real type A you know geniuses all into uh, a confined space like brake bills, you know uh, it would just be a real hothouse, and there would be a lot of stress and uh, a lot of competition. And I think that blow off that steam by doing a lot of
0: drinking and probably too much drinking. Um, now, there's also something about this book I think is very interesting. It's uh, Anglophilia. <laughs> this, uh, fantasy seems to really want to have this kind of British edge to it. And could you talk about that in this book? Because this is set in a very American setting, but there's still that Anglophilia right there the The fantasy tradition,
1: the modern fantasy tradition you know is really it's very much founded on English writing and on this dream of a lost bucolic england uh, and of course, this comes from from Tolkien and Lewis, who were soldiers in the first world war and they lived to see you know uh the the rise of electric light and and the and the um and cars, and they dreamed of that lost rural world that will never come back. But, you know, when you write as an American, you can't, you can't pretend to be English. The, first, the people I think of who did this first were, were Fritz Lieber and Ursula Le Guin, who grasped that tradition, that Tolkien tradition, and wrested it away from the English and, and made it American. And I felt as if I was I was doing that some of that work as as well. I wanted these people not to spot, speak in sort of neat clipped English tones. And my mother's English, so I've heard a lot of those tones in my life. I wanted them to, to talk like American kids. And uh, and it's fun. It's often quite funny to hear them. You know, to they're having magical adventures, but they're talking like Americans. It actually sounds quite funny. Um, but the humor is in, intentional. I hope.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things I – that was the next thing I wanted to bring up was that you, you do a really good job with humor in this book. It's very funny. A- and you do – one of the, the risks you run when you're uh, writing any kind of fantasy, especially fantasy with talking animals, is somebody's going to go, oh, my God, I'm talking <laughs> rabbit. Oh, jeez, what is what is this? So uh, could you talk about using humor to, like, point up the absurdity of, of some of these situations and and, and – Make it fun.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, had, I had a lot of fun with this book. And some of the humor comes from situations like that, which, you know, when Tolkien uh, and Lewis wrote about Narnia, it was very sort of new and exciting to have to th- this world. But we now, I think, are, you know, having, having, you know, however many years on, 60 years on, are more conscious of the absurdities of having talking animals. And I, uh, you know, I, I wanted animals who talked in this book, but I wanted to really think about what it'd be like to talk to an animal. And I think it would often be quite dull. <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, if you were talking to, you know, talking to, there's a talking bear in the novel. And, you know, well, what do bears think about all the time? Well, it's, you know, mostly honey, I guess. And, you know, um, hibernating, cave geology, probably a big big topic with bears. I mean, what would that, what would a bear say if it could talk? You know, I don't, I don't think it would be necessarily have a lot of witty banter. I, I think they're mostly set up to, you know, think about, you know, um, you know, berries and stuff
0: now uh one of your uh characters is Russian, and he used a word that just jumped out of me from my uh anthony burgess days uh mm. show which mm. gets corrupted in a clockwork orange to horror show yeah was right. that was that was that was that from your anthony burgess days or no it comes from
1: there's this there's a sequence with there, a there's a russian guy named mayakovsky and um but I think that whole sequence, I'm only realizing it at this exact second. It was very heavily influenced by the summer I spent at uh, Middlebury College doing a language immersion program where I didn't speak any Russian, but I went to the, the Russian immersion program, and you could only, you weren't allowed to speak English, and you were isolated, and you're set aside with everybody, and everybody could only speak Russian, and it's quite a weird alienating experience. Um, uh, but there was a Russian instructor at this at this school, uh, and uh, he's, throws in a little Russian here uh, here and there, and хорошо is something that Russians say a lot, and it just means good, you know, but they just sort of, they throw it around the way we sort of say, sort of, say sort of great, you know, and good stuff all the time. Uh, thank God I was able to put my Russian language skills to good use
0: finally by <laughs> writing this character. Well, I, actually, I have to say that uh, when you describe the school, it sounds a lot, in many ways, like break bills. Mm. It is a because breakbills is an immersion in something completely different, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it it is. It's based on that, and, and I mean, I went to Harvard as an undergrad, and that was very intense uh, and competitive in this way. Um, although honestly, breakbills is sort of more like my fantasy of like what I thought Harvard was going to be like before <laughs> I actually went there and <laughs> found out how m-
0: mundane and, and quite boring it was you do have these great fillery novels which run through the book and we hear their plots and the characters have read them and could you talk about this kind of metafictional resonance the books within the books um it's circles and mirrors I mean this is a really and, and there's one point in this book where in this book where I was reading it and I just had one of those great aha moments yeah. that you have when you're reading uh, books sometimes. And, and it came from that kind of metafictional zing that you put in there. I love books about books.
1: Uh, I always have. I mean, A.S. by its Possession is a favorite of mine. Borges writes a lot about books about books. I didn't want to write a metafictional game like, you know, like, you know, I don't know, Robert Coover or something. I wanted to write a fantasy novel. But uh, it was, I couldn't resist sort of doing this sort of, uh, having them be living a fantasy life but also be reading fantasy books um, and I wanted to, yeah, I guess play with that idea of, you know, if you read a fantasy novel I grew up reading Narnia um, I think that implanted in my head a belief that my life, you know, would be like Narnia, you know, I would one day grow up and, and, and get to live you know, in a, in a world that, that was just that exciting and vivid and glowing and meaningful um, and of course I didn't get to do that because nobody does. Um, but the difference between life as described in a book and life uh, as
0: lived in reality, uh, it's a major theme with me, I guess. And, and uh, one of the things that reality seems to be devoid of, thankfully, are what I call the uh M.T.B.G.'s, mustache-twiddling bad guys. Mm. And, and your book is, is, is pleasantly devoid of, of, of M.T.B.G.'s. <laughs> Could you talk about that? And You know, it's, it's an interesting approach to, to fantasy literature that's not, that's not often used, really.
1: Well, if, this, if there's a bad you know, habit that, that, that fantasy writers have sometimes, it is a tendency to introduce into their worlds the personification of ultimate evil. And, you know, whether that's Sauron or, or the White Witch or Voldemort, you know, it has this funny organizing effect on the world whereby suddenly the whole world is divided into white and black and, and good and evil, and the world becomes very simple in some ways. You know... Uh, um, where everybody stands. It's one reason I think that Snape is, is JK Rowling's greatest creation, because he is so much a creature of shades of gray. Well, if you take away Voldemort, if you subtract that term from the equation, suddenly the world is all shades of gray. And you don't know exactly. Everybody's a little bit good and a little bit evil. And getting, making decisions is much harder. And you know, when you have uh, a, 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 the, the personification of ultimate evil handy, well, it, it's a big help in some ways, because you know what magic is for. You know what your purpose is. And uh, when you take away that, then the adventure becomes a very different adventure. It becomes not about, about defeating the villain. The adventure becomes trying to figure out what magic is for. You have, this, you have all this power. Uh, what is the right thing to do with it? Um, it's a very different kind of adventure from a conventional fantasy adventure.
0: And that brings me to another point that I think this, about this book that's very interesting is, is your sense of plotting. Um, there's all sorts of different kinds of plots in this book. I think there's the you know there's the literary plot in uh, as we're reading we're thinking about fantasy literature and about literature and reading as fantasy and then there's the you know on-the-ground plot with the characters going through. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about uh, maybe playing those two kinds of uh, plotting techniques off one another? Because there's are as I say there's points where they absolutely come together and you just go ah, ah, oh <laughs> my god that's so cool.
1: Well I'm a very impatient reader I I like plotty books. I do not have much patience with lyrical novels that sort of wander in in, in circles, um, while you know you get this sort of very fine details of of of, uh, of you know some peripheral characters. You know uh, morning shaving ritual. Uh, I I need my books to move straight ahead, right? You know uh, uh, and 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 when, and they get right up to maximum speed and they never slow down. Uh, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time taking things out of this book that I worried would get in the way of, of the main story. And, I, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, you have to sacrifice very much to do that. I don't think it's the case that you can't have a book that is, you know, that is profound, that has really powerful moving emotions. Um, uh, uh, you can have that, and you, but, and, and you don't have to slow down the plot. You, you, I, I really, it's important for me to keep everything moving. Otherwise, I get bored, and I can only assume that, that readers uh, get bored as well
0: one of the opportunities that characters in fantasy novels have is something that most of us don't have which is a chance to address maybe God <laughs> that's
1: that's true that's funny it's a funny thing about, about, about fantasy novels they're really quite profound in many ways for example you know the end of the world you know it's not a trope in fantasy novels worlds really do end and you have to sort of confront what that's like what's that like and often you come face to face with your gods because in fantasy novels you know they walk among us Mm -hmm. uh and boy you know uh uh that's kind of a that's a fantasy of mine is being able to (laughs) confront whoever the hell's running things around here it was always a big frustration for me in, in the narnia books you look at prince caspian or something well uh uh, Aslan spends half the novel playing peekaboo with Lucy, you know, jumping in and out from behind trees and stuff. I mean, I love the book, but my God, if he, he could have showed up, you know, 100 pages earlier, he could have saved a lot of people, you know, the, the, the Narnians go through a lot, of, a lot of trouble in that book. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, Aslan's basically omnipotent. Uh, why didn't he step in a little bit earlier and save everybody a lot of pain?
0: When you talk about this kind of, you know, popping in and out, one of the things that, that's interesting is that uh, you point out that after they've been in fillery for a while and this absolutely, when you're in this immersed in this fantastic world, after a while, even the most fantastic world kind of goes, okay, yeah, there's just another damn talking animal I had to deal with.
1: <laughs> what else you got? <laughs> Um, it's true I, 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 you know, this, the book takes place in, in, in sort of real time and uh, well you know y- you wonder uh, if, if, you were, if you spend a, you know, a year in Narnia, five years, if, if you spent ten hours in Narnia there might there not be a moment when the con- non-stop wonderment wears off and you know suppose you have to walk five miles as you probably do since there isn't public transportation um, well, you'd, after a while you start to feel kind of bored and sort of Fed up and maybe a little irritable. What would it be like to feel bored and irritable in Narnia? I felt like that was a good question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and and the other thing that could can take away from these worlds of the fantastic is is that if there are real characters who are immersed in this fantastic world who are having problems with one another, as happens with your characters, all of a sudden it's no matter how Wonderment surrounded you are. If you're having a fight with your yeah. friend, it's going to probably take precedence, isn't it? It, it, uh, what? It's one of my favorite bits. If
1: I can praise my own work uh, uh, for for a moment. Um, uh, yes, it's when you know the the Quentin, the hero, has been. You know, he's been. He's got an active fantasy life, and he's been dreaming of this moment that happens. You know for his whole life, and, uh, uh, you know, it's been leading up to this. But on the day when that actually (laughs) happens, he's, you know, he's just, he and his girlfriend are just having this raging problem, you know, and they're just totally, they're both totally put out and and feeling pissed off and sulky. And, uh, you know, uh, it's just a bad, it's just a bad time to go to 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 Fillory. (laughs) And, you know, it's sort of like, you know, uh, that's just sometimes that's somehow sometimes uh, that's how life works.
0: Wonderful things happen at really crappy moments uh, games are are always important in fantasy and whether they're games within the fantasy world or games that create the fantasy world. Mm. You have games within the fantasy world, but you also talk about the importance of the games that create fantasy worlds to wit d and d and it's very structured and pretty reasonable system of magic, yeah. Well,
1: again, you know, I wanted this book to happen in our world, and uh, uh, I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to let the book whole book go by without, you know, flicking at the fact that, you know, what would it be like? You grow up playing Dungeons & Dragons, and then you learn to play, then you learn to do magic for real. You'd think back, and gosh, well, you know, uh, uh, let's, go just, let's just go back through the player's handbook for a second, f- figure out, you know, wow, can I really do Magic Missile? Because uh, that would be awesome! <laughs> uh, and it's funny, the characters, you know, they're they're working on coming up with their own spells, and they're trying to come up with ideas, and they think, oh, well, let's just go to the player's handbook and see if we can't swat up some of this, you know, seventh-level illusionist magic, because, heck, Gary Gygax has done all the work for us, you know? <laughs> we don't want to reinvent the wheel. And it's funny, again, about that rule-based sense of magic. Uh, that was one of the things that the, the Dungeons & Dragons guys, you know, had to do. They had to make magic behave according to rules and uh, allow you to work out the probabilities with dice throws. And, uh, uh, you know, that's a lot of ways analogous to... It really shaped my the way I think about magic because, of course, D&D, it's, it, it's, it's orderly, but it's messy at the same time. and That's what's sort of great about it, and I, I tried to
0: recapture that some of that in The Magicians. Uh, fantasy fiction loves to do name checks, a- and there's one particular name check I want to ask you about. Pangborn. Pangborn, right. Edgar Pangborn. Yes.
1: No, I know. Uh, I'd, I'd forgotten that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell uh, us who he is. Uh, did he, how much of his stuff did you read? Uh, uh, not very much. I just loved his, his name. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, that. I think I just I just stole that. Uh, I'm not that familiar with Pangborn. Um, but, I mean, wow, what a name. Yeah. You know, I'm stuck with a name like Grossman. Uh, why couldn't I have been Lev Pangborn? <laughs> <laughs>
0: One of the things that, that you also do that I think is very interesting is playing with time. Mm. And time is a really, it's a theme through here. I mean, it's a theme with the, with the books within the books, and it's also a theme within your book itself. Uh, why? What's the interest in that? I mean.
1: Yeah, it's very, it's, 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 well, it's, it's very true. There's a lot of clockwork in this book. Mm-hmm. A lot of clocks and a lot of watches and a lot of clockwork. And that it's there for two reasons. One, it's super cool, <laughs> you know. And I, I'm a big fan of steampunk and and all the whole sort of brass clockwork sort of aesthetic. But it was also very important to me, you know. One of the way the ways in the Fillory novels, the, one the way that the the child um, who first discovers Fillory, Martin, gets there, is by crawling through. He opens up the door in uh, uh, a grandfather clock in his uncle's house, and he he opens it through and he crawls past the pendulum, and he gets into Fillory. And uh, I wanted to play with the sense that, you know, um, a fantasy world, you think of it as a place where in some ways time stops. There's no such thing as loss in a fantasy world. There's no such thing as death uh, or decay. Everything is wonderful forever. And I wanted to emphasize, I guess, or sound that theme that we're building a world that is fantastical, that has magic in it and talking animals and goodness knows what else, but it's also the real world, and it's a world where where time passes and and people die, and uh, and and bad things happen. Uh, so it's sort of like it's as if uh, you know. The, I I I didn't want the clock to be stopped. I wanted to make it clear that you know,
0: it's a magical world, but it's also a world where there's uh, death. When you're writing a fantasy like this and it's set in a fantastical world, you you actually have to come up with stuff that is fantastic, <laughs> which yeah. is maybe a lot easier said than done, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah. It's it's true it comes from a it comes from a funny place. Uh I think about, you know, what what Lewis did in in the Narnia books creating something like the wood between the worlds, which is always my favorite creation of his. Granted it's a bit of a it's a steal from William Morris who had a novel called The Wood Beyond the Worlds, but Lewis did a lot did some amazing work with it. And it's funny, uh where some of those images come from, you don't quite know. You almost don't realize that they're you're writing them and then afterwards you think ah,
0: that's really strange and wonderful. I wonder where that came from. This book, in some ways, is the conclusion of a series that was never written. Um, is it a, the beginning of a series that is yet to be written?
1: <laughs> I do think of it more as the, as the prequel to, uh, <laughs> to a series that, that that hasn't been written. I wrote it originally as a standalone. I wanted a... Uh, I didn't think about, about anything after this. I wanted to write a novel that began and, and, and ended within itself. But... You know, towards the end, I had an idea for another story, that set within this world, and it was too big a story to fold into the plot of of the magicians. It needed its own book to be in. So now I think that um, I am going to write another story, uh, a sequel. I, I'm trying to talk around the S word. It w- will be a sequel, and it will be, it will deal with some of the same characters. Uh, I don't know how many. I I don't know how many uh, uh, more books. I don't know if I'll write a, a proper series, but. There will be another book after this, um, and uh, uh, I've, I've been sketching it out. Um, uh, I, I, I shouldn't say any more than that because I'll probably change my mind eighty times while I'm writing it. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you know, we'll see Quentin again, and we might see some other some
0: other old friends again. <laughs> uh, you know, um, this book has, and all your other books really have a sensibility that could be called weird. This is uh, strongly in the tradition of weird fiction. Yep, you're the book critic for, you know, the perhaps, you know, the absolute, you know, mainstream of mainstream (laughs) (laughs) magazine in the entire universe around which reality, I mean, Time magazine defines our concrete everyday reality as much as, you know, anything else out there. Uh, Could you talk about, is there the tension between that for you?
1: yes there is a very there's a real tension there it's true uh and I, it's funny in some ways that i what i wound up working at time i i was hired by time in the uh, as a as a web producer i used to 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 work on on um i used to do web stuff for them but mm-hmm. i had this this literary background and uh you know a Whatever, an education, and I had done a lot of reviewing, and when the reviewer t- retired, I stepped into his spot. But I don't think Time quite knew what they were getting when they <laughs> hired me, because I am a lot weirder than most people who work there. And I am very, very proud. If I, there's one thing I'm proud of, of my tenure at Time, it's that I have made us cover books that we never would have covered in the past. I have made Time cover science fiction and fantasy. I've made. I, I've. I've written about about George R. R. Martin and and Joe Abercrombie and goodness knows how many other people that you know the old time never would have written about. Uh, i I made. I made time write about video games. We never used to cover them, uh, so I feel like I've had a real corrupting influence on time, and uh, I'm hoping for that to continue.
0: Well, it, it actually. If you're talking about bringing video games to time, I mean that's like. Uh, it's interesting when you put it that way because. It's like time exists in its own kind of uh, fantasy world where everything's really normal, and there aren't things like video game and science fiction. When in fact, the majority of mainstream movies and uh, are science fiction or have some hint of science fiction fantasy to them. And good lord, video games make ten times as much money as movies.
1: There was a you know there came a moment where I had to say to some so some of the editors there, I love time by the way. People there are really mm-hmm. really smart, but it just has a powerful culture that you know, that. Um, you know, sometimes it takes a while to change. Uh and I, you know, there was a point where they were sort of like, well, you know, all this nichey sort of subculture stuff, you know, I mean that's great, but you know, I don't know if it really belongs in time. And I you know, I, I just said, you don't realize that you guys are the subculture and we're the culture now. <laughs> so uh, you know, welcome to the culture and welcome to video games and uh, you know,
0: George R. R. Martin. <laughs> I've been speaking with Lev Grossman. His newest novel is The Magicians. Thank you for joining me, Lev. Uh, It's been a pleasure.